These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it, for the fact that we can rely upon it, what has happened and what is yet to happen. We give you thanks, Lord. You are God and there is no other, no other like you. In Christ's name we pray and praise you. This verse kind of comes out of nowhere in this chapter. You see in verses 1 through 7 that he covers the qualifications of elders, and then in verses 8 through 10 the qualifications of deacons. And then he tells him that he wants to come to him and that he's going to visit him shortly, but if I'm delayed, I'm writing this for this reason, that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And him referring to the house of God and how he ought to conduct himself just catapults Paul into this where he has to share this mystery of godliness and these six statements. I think it's just remarkable that it comes after he's talked about the elder and deacon qualifications because you might be tempted to believe that being an elder or a deacon, being someone who can fulfill these things is the pinnacle of what you can achieve. And I think what Paul is really saying is, don't even think that. That's foolishness. All of us aspire to so much more. We can't think of living for God as being this minimally meeting these requirements. I know that some of the requirements are high, but I'm just saying that this is what I think is in Paul's mind. He's overwhelmed with the truth of the gospel, with what Christianity is all about, and he just ends this chapter with this tremendous thought. Now, there is a word here that um, kind of puzzled me at first. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And so when I read that, I thought, well, there's great controversy about all of these things that Paul goes on to say. And so how can he say that it's without controversy? And I just want to rephrase this to where hopefully it clicks for you like it did for me. And without a doubt, great is the mystery of godliness. That's what's intended there. It's that what I'm about to share with you, no one doubts that it is incredible. So that's what is this uh, lack of controversy. It's that every, we all agree, this is crazy stuff that I'm going to share with you. Now, there are about 31,000 verses in the Bible. And this, what we're going to talk about today is only one verse. It's 1 Timothy 3.16. It's the other 3.16, if you will. We all know the other one that's more famous than it. But this is like his younger brother who sits in his shadow. If you were to put squares all over this, 
wall here, 31,000 squares and throw darts all afternoon, I doubt you'd hit a verse that is more theologically meaty than 1 Timothy 3.16. And so it just kind of, in my opinion, it's up there. It's up there in the rare air of what is conveying theological truth to us. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Mystery is not an uncommon word in the New Testament. Mystery occurs 22 times in the New Testament. And let me read you a few of these, and then I'll share something with you. Mark 4.11. To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom. Romans 11.25. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Romans 16.25. Revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. Ephesians 1.9 having made known to us the mystery of his will. Colossians 2.2, attaining to the knowledge of the mystery of God. Now I've shared five verses of the 22, and yet what you'll find with these and many others is there's a common thread that connects them all, and it is the fact that we're not talking about a mystery anymore. The mystery was revealed. Not all believe it, but yet the mystery was revealed. In pagan religions, in Christian cults, there is mystery that's intentionally kept hidden from you. Why? Because you're unworthy. There are only an elite few that are worthy, and you're not among them, I'm sorry. With the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's 144,000. With the Mormons, it's those that are inducted into the Melchizedek priesthood. So see, Christianity is not like the Christian cults. Christianity is not like paganism. In Christianity, the mystery has been revealed. We can all enter into God's presence immediately. That's the mystery. That's what makes Christianity so special, so incredibly unique. There is nothing separating you from God but your sin. And you have to cast that upon Christ. Then you're free to walk right into God's presence. It is an amazing thing. That you cannot forget. If you don't remember anything about this sermon, don't forget that. Remember that the mystery is that you now have access to God. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, this also could be rendered devotion or true religion. So what we're talking about then is just the core of Christianity. This is Christianity. These six statements that he is about to share. Now, I did associate gestures with these. And so let me go ahead and read the text and share with you the gestures. You don't have to do them. If you're little, though, you might enjoy it. And I don't think your parents would rebuke you. So, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen by angels. Preached among the Gentiles. Believed in. In the world. And received up into glory.
So see, these help me anyway, remember, memorize things. I think they might help you memorize things too. Let me run through them again. They're interesting. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received in glory. What I've given you, these six simple statements, look at how my hands go up, down, here, 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 up. These statements are, again, this mystery of Christianity. Christianity knits us as people, as humans, to God in heaven above. And so we're connecting the earthly realm with the heavenly realm with these six simple statements. God in the heaven, manifested in the flesh, earthly, vindicated by the Spirit, back up in the heavenly, seen by angels in the heavenly, preached among the Gentiles, were back down on earth, believed in, again on earth, received up in glory. And so you can see that Christianity, just through these visual illustrations, is a unique religion and that it connects us with God in this fundamental way. Now, when you study this, and when you see it, it begs for you to attach a chronology to these events. What exactly is being referred to when we say manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels? And so many commentators attempt to then anchor this in time, and I did. At first I thought, well, yeah, duh, it looks like that. And so you hit, though, a paradox fairly quickly, and let me show it to you. In the sixth and last statement, received up in glory. Now, who among you doesn't think that that is Christ's ascension? Received up in glory. God was received up in glory. It, has seem, it seems to beg for the interpretation that this is Jesus at the end of his ministry ascending to God in glory. But look at number four. God was preached among the Gentiles. Now that didn't occur during Christ's ministry. The Gentiles were after the Jews had been preached to. So if you try to tie a tight chronology to this, it kind of makes you decide on things that you really don't want to have to decide on. Uh, I read one famous commentator here, and he just insisted that this sixth one cannot possibly be referring to Jesus ascending to the Father in heaven. And I thought, well, it sure seems like that to me. It just doesn't make sense that it does not refer to Jesus ascending up to his Father in heaven. So... What I believe is here is that these are statements. You don't have to take them chronologically, although they are somewhat chronological. But there is potentially one action, but there's also this continuity. For instance, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. You know, he came as a babe in the manger, yet he also lived for 33 years. So he was manifested in the flesh for a long time, and he remains manifested in the flesh, as Gary spoke of in the communion meditation. So when we say that God was manifested in the flesh, we don't have to point to a particular point in time where it began or ended. It has continued. Jesus was justified by the Spirit. That could be also at multiple times throughout his ministry, throughout his life. 
Jesus seen by angels? Well, we had the angels that heralded his birth. We had those angels that ministered to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. We had the angels that sung a welcome to him when he came into heaven. So again, it it's, seems to be ongoing. So I wouldn't get caught up in the chronology. They're just all true statements. And while there's a general time frame there, you don't have to say that because he was received up in glory, can't refer to his ascension because it came after him being preached to the Gentiles. I don't think that squares. Now, manifested in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. You have to understand why the word manifested was used here. Manifested implies pre-existence of what was revealed. And so this is saying that what was manifested had already existed, but is now appearing in the flesh. What was not seen before, but is now seen in the flesh. In John 17, Jesus said this. He's in the high priestly prayer. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus is now in the flesh, yet he longs to return to the glory that he had enjoyed with the Father before he came into flesh. Manifested in flesh. Paul said in Romans 8, verses 2 and 3, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Again, you know, Gary gave a great appetizer to this sermon in his communion meditation. I want to comment, though, briefly on this, that His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Cults make hay with this sentence, with this word, likeness of sinful flesh. Oh, see, the Bible says it right there. Jesus only came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Well, see, they are taking likeness and having it modify flesh alone. What does it modify? It modifies the full statement in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why would anyone, not knowing Jesus or his history, believe that he was not a sinner like them? It really is logical and probable that he is a man like you, born into sin like you, a sinner like you. So that he was not, that he bypassed man, bypassed the manhood of Adam and the sinfulness of Adam is remarkable. It's extraordinary. God did that such that Jesus would be free from sin. But see, he is in the likeness of sinful flesh. So it was easy for all of these people to presume that Jesus can't possibly be this sinless Messiah. Another explicit reference to Christ in the flesh, and this is probably one of the best, if not the best, is in John chapter 1, verse 14. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Obvious that Jesus is the one that is mentioned here. And then, of course, we have Luke 2, the Christmas story that we all hear at this time of the year. Luke 2, starting at verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And we know the rest of the story. We know that out in the field, the shepherds see these angels. These shepherds then rush to the stable to see what has occurred. It's just all a beautiful part of the Christmas story. God becoming enfleshed. So, God was manifested in the flesh and justified in the spirit. Now, there's debate over what is meant here. Um, spirit could be taken as small s spirit, Jesus' own spirit, his human spirit, or the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And so, if it's one versus the other, if it's Holy Spirit, then it's an emphasis upon the Holy Spirit's vindication of Christ in his ministry. If it's Jesus' own spirit, it is that he himself is innocent of what he was later crucified for. But either way, it does come down to justified in the spirit. To be justified, we know, is to be declared righteous. So for Jesus to have been declared righteous by the spirit or in the spirit, he had to overcome some very visible obstacles. First... He was executed as a criminal. It would be likely then that people would regard him as guilty of that. After all, we don't execute criminals for no reason, right? We don't execute people for nothing. But this happens. So Christ was hated and despised and executed as a criminal. The Spirit vindicated this. The Spirit, the spirit uh, vindicated the fact that Christ was innocent of this crime for which he was executed. He endured this penalty on our behalf. We are the ones that are truly guilty of that crime. He rose and lives because he suffered this execution unjustly. So he rose in innocence because he was crucified unjustly. We live because he suffered this execution on our behalf. So though there is an injustice at the heart of the crucifixion of Christ, God corrects both of them because God is in the business of correcting injustices that we commit on this earth. And one day, all injustices will be corrected. So Jesus was innocent and unworthy of death. And his resurrection was proof to all that God did not hold him accountable for that. And so God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, and seen by angels. 
The word angel here is angelos. It could be messenger. It can be uh, humans that are being mentioned, not just truly heavenly angels. And yet, nearly everyone says, no, these are the heavenly beings. Until the birth of Christ, think of this. Until the birth of Christ, until God took on this flesh, he would have never been seen. God was spirit. He was invisible to humans. He was invisible to the angelic realm as well. The angels would not have seen God, looked upon God. He was too holy for them to look upon. They're a part of this material world just like us. Though they're created spirits, they're created. But that changed, didn't it? The angels changed. Now, there were these theophanies, there were these appearances of angels and the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament during that time. And yet, there, I think we must more think of the angels and Jesus as having just taken upon themselves a body, like a cloak, but not coming into existence as a man and being infused with this human spirit and then growing. That's not it at all. So the angels ministering to Jesus must have been amazed. What is going on? You have really two camps. You have the godly angels and you have the fallen angels. The godly angels would be amazed at what's going on. What would the evil angels be thinking? They're probably disgusted by this. They're amused by this. What is going on? You remember when David precedes the ark into Jerusalem, you remember what Michal, his wife, thought looking out the window. She despised him in her heart. As much as she had loved him in her youth, but now she's a queen's wife. She wants her king to behave in dignity. And he's out there embarrassing himself. And worse, he's embarrassing me. I didn't sign up to be the wife of a man who goes out there and embarrasses himself in public like this. And so she confronts him when he comes in. And what does he say? I did it. I'll do it again. <laughs> I'm not changing. But he put her away. They did not live then as man and wife for the remainder of her life anyway. And so, see, that's what I think the demon, the fallen angels, thought about Christ coming in the flesh. They were disgusted by this. They were amused by this. What is going on? Okay. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, and preached among the Gentiles. Now, not only was Jesus preached among the Jews, but he was preached among the Gentiles. And see, the Gentiles are the scum of the earth. They're unworthy to be preached to. There may be a proselyte here or there that you can uh, salvage from these Jewish and Greek and other nations, but they're the few and far between. And yet, this is what God wanted. This is what God had planned. And so this gospel went out like a wildfire across the entire Roman Empire. And think of the Roman Empire. Think of the martial pride that the Romans had. We have it here in America. I mean, we have it. 
We are a very powerful nation on earth. Rome was the powerful nation on earth. And that had to infuse them with pride that would be a stench in the nostrils of God. Yet, God, in his mercy, was willing to reach out and share the good news with all of them. It was being spread across the entire Roman Empire. The Greeks, the Greeks were intellectually proud, philosophically proud, a very proud people. And yet you know that both the Romans and the Greeks were incredibly immoral, sexually and, and in all ways, idolatry rampant. Yet God had a plan to change all of that. And the gospel was going to open up to all the world, all the nations of the world, all the ethnicities of the world. Jesus was preached among the Gentiles. When he was in his flesh, he would not only speak with the Jews, but he had the audacity to speak with that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, worse than a Gentile. The Samaritans were syncretists. The Samaritans had abandoned the true worship of God a thousand years earlier. Here is Jesus speaking to this woman. It astounded his own apostles. What are you doing? Don't you know who this is? And what would Jesus have been thinking? Of course I know who this is. And it's not that I don't care. It's that I do care. I do care enough to risk your looks at me. I'm embarrassing you, aren't I, Peter? I'm embarrassing you, aren't I, John, talking to this woman at the well? And yet Jesus just did it. He just did it, broke through all these bounds. And the leaders, what could they accuse Jesus of? They really accused him of two main things. Consorting with sinners and tax collectors. They never accused him until the end when he's pushing them so much that they get infuriated with him because the leaders wanted to recognize him as a godly man. They knew he was. They could see it. Yet they were offended by who he related with. If he's being tainted by interacting with them, obviously he's like them. He's a sinner too. So he was... God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles, and believed in, believed in. So God awakened the peoples of the world to faith. Colossians, when uh, Pastor Kaiser preached on Acts long ago, he cited the fact that the gospel had gone out to all the world. I'd never heard that. But yet Colossians 1 says it right there. You heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. They reached the known world with the gospel in the day of the founding of the church. It's amazing to think that. We are trained out of that with just your Bible bookstore mentality. But no, they reached the known world with the gospel. The gospel transformed the known world, amazingly so. Now, what did the Jewish leaders think about this, though, this transformation of the world? They were appalled. Their word, their precious word, their precious religion was being defiled. It had been transformed into this 
ugly Jewish sect in their mind and given to all of these Gentiles. They hated Christ. They hated the apostles. They hated all these Christians. And they would have exterminated them. Yet, they were prevented. Matthew 24, verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So the Jews hated the Christians so much that they really came close to exterminating them. I mean, it's amazing to think that this fledgling church that had grown like gangbusters in those first few years was nearly exterminated by the powers that be at that time. The Jews were under the boot of the Roman nation. That's true. We know this. But they were so powerful. Pastor Kaiser has portrayed that so well in his Revelation series. They had such a tremendous influence within the Roman Empire. They got to celebrate, practice their religion unlike any of the other nations that were under the heel of Rome. And they used all that power to attempt to crush, exterminate Christianity. Believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. And I believe that preposition in is an important one for us to focus on. The Roman Catholics would have you believe that the possibility exists that your belief doesn't have to occur in this world. It can wait. Your salvation can wait until you leave this world. And then you're in this limbo state where you and others can earn your way out of that limbo state, this purgatory, a place that exists between life and death, where your faith can be nurtured and grow and come to save you. But that's a lie. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Joel 3.14 says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You must decide while you have life. While you have breath, every human heart has a very fixed number of beats that only God knows. You'll only have so many breaths. Now, we know that some of our number, and maybe they're listening if the uh, streaming is working, but some have the whooping cough. Now, until a few days ago, I didn't know what the whooping cough was other than it had a really cool name. And yet, I wouldn't want to have it. Do you know why they call it the whooping cough? Many of you probably do. But your tract your, leading down to your lungs is so inflamed, so bothered, that you're coughing, 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 you can't stop. You cough so much that you cough all the air out of your lungs. And in desperation, your body, in an instant of time, sucks oxygen in after one of those coughing jags ends. And it makes this whooping sound. I mean, your body is so desperate for air that it makes this incredibly loud, weird sound. So then it's become known as the whooping cough. I, I was telling Gary that in China it's known as the 100-day the cough because it takes so long to get rid of. But see, every human, every one of us, will one day breathe our last on this earth. And let me tell you, I've watched people breathe their last. It's not typically 
like you see in the movies. <gasps> and then gone. No, no, no. They slip away. They slip away. Last heartbeat, last breath, it's really hard to detect. I was reading in the room uh, that my sister was passing in to friends and family. We were all there, none of them believers. But I was reading to them scripture after scripture. God just kept giving me scriptures. And I'm reading, reading. And then right as I was running out of scripture and I didn't know what I would read next, I was told that she had passed. You know, she's just sitting there quiet the whole time for 30, 40 minutes. But that, that's how we slip away. We think we can control it. No, no, you can't control it. It's not like you're on a stage and dying. Oh, no. You're probably going to be unconscious when you die. It's not like you're going to have this last minute to have this epiphany. Oh, by the way, one day I said I would believe in Jesus. I guess that's here now. No, it doesn't work that way. If you persist in opposition to God, persist in unbelief, you harden yourself, harden yourself, harden yourself, you just pass into eternity like that. It's without fanfare. And then God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in, received up in glory. So now, it's beautiful in Acts 1, where we have this occur. Jesus said, It is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I don't know much about angels, but I'm guessing that they have a sense of humor because they had to realize that this is pretty shocking stuff to watch someone be raised up into heaven and disappear into a cloud under his own power. And yet all they can do is deadpan, what are you staring up into the sky for? <laughs> I mean, I really think that these angels were poking fun at these people. They were in a position of knowledge now that these men lacked, they could say, why do you stand there gazing up into the sky? Now, how, how do we see Jesus? At Christmas time, we see Jesus in the manger scene. He's in the manger. He's the babe. He's surrounded by angels proclaiming his birth. And this is a beautiful way to picture Jesus, the incarnation. At Easter, we see Jesus typically on the cross. Then we see the empty tomb. And we know that he's been resurrected. We know that he's come to life. He starts appearing to people. And then he ascends in the clouds. So now, how, though... That covers Christmas and Easter, right? That's two Sundays out of the 52. 
How do you think you should view Jesus those other 50 Sundays, those other 50 weeks? I believe we have the answer, and Pastor Kaiser gave it to us in Revelation when he preached on Revelation 5. And I'm going to read you a portion of that. Revelation 5, and I'll read verses 4 and 5 and then skip to 11. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. I think that's how we should see Jesus. We see him as the Lion of Judah on the throne. We see him as the Lamb sacrificed from the foundation of the world. He is both. He is the Lion and the Lamb. He is our Savior. He is our King. And He will rule throughout eternity. And He began that at His ascension. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the reality of Jesus, what all he has accomplished. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in on the earth, and raised up into glory. It is this God that we praise, this God that we worship, this God that we proclaim. We proclaim our uh, faithfulness to him and our adherence to his word and to his memory. We give you thanks now and ask you, Lord, to open our eyes, open our ears, have us to be true to you in the days and weeks and months ahead until we pass from this earth. We give you thanks in Christ's name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.